Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford, and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. I'm interviewing Professor Dave Goulson of University of Sussex, who received his bachelor's degree in biology from Oxford University. He followed that up with a doctorate on butterfly ecology at Oxford Brookes University and lectured in biology for 11 years at the University of Southampton, where he began to study bumblebees in earnest. Professor Golson is author of more than 290 scientific articles on the ecology and conservation of bumblebees and other insects. He has also published many books of what I consider Bibles of native pollinators, namely Bumblebees, Their Behavior, Ecology, and Conservation at Oxford University Press. His bestseller, Sting in the Tail, in 2014, A Buzz in the Meadow, BeeQuest in 2017, and this year, The Garden Jungle, which I would like to delve into with you later. Professor Golson founded the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006, a charity which has grown to over 12,000 members. And in 2015, he was named number eight of 50 of the most influential people in conservation by BBC Wildlife Magazine. Welcome, Professor Golson. My, my pleasure to be here. I just thought, you know, let's start with some good news because when we talk about pollinators, the news is pretty grim and people really can't hear very much of that. Uh, so I've heard you have you have some land uh, that you're working on to support bees. Can you tell us some happy news about how they're responding? Yeah, so um, a few years ago now, what, 15 years ago, I bought a, a, a little farm in France in the middle of nowhere. Um, which up until that time had been uh, used for arable crops and there wasn't really much wildlife particularly there. And I've been slowly turning the whole lot into a, a basically a wildflower meadow, um, which, which is frustratingly slow at times, but every year there are a few more flowers arrive and a few more bees arrive. And it's really beautiful now. It's, uh, it's, it's a great place to go and relax and listen to the bees and the, see the butterflies flapping about and, and feel you've done, you know, a little thing to make the world a bit, uh, bit better. It sounds like an oasis. Sounds like uh, there's home and habitat for all sorts of different things. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of sad that, uh, you know, a lot of farmland these days is so inhospitable to insect life, but it, but it can be reversed, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And it's amazing how quickly things can recover if we just stop, you know, stop messing things up, stop spraying pesticides, stop plowing it up every, every year. Um, you know, in, insects are, are pretty resilient and, and there's thankfully not many have gone extinct yet. So the, the potential is there for them to recover well. We just need to give them a chance. That's a great message. That's really good news. I agree. That's my personal experience here in California, too. When a friend of mine started a farm just a couple of years ago and I go up there for sanity because there's so many insects. So it's really a joy to see that if you do plant it, they will come. Yeah. Kevin Costner got it right. <laughs> so a lot of people think or hear the word bee and they just think of honeybees automatically. Can you please define the difference between our commercially managed European honeybee and what are native bees and pollinators? Yeah, of course. Um, so there are a 
great number of species of bee in the world and um, you know many people have no idea at all as you say I think quite a lot of people mistakenly believe there's just one species of bee and it lives in a, a hive and it makes honey and it pollinates everything um, but actually it couldn't be much further from the truth that there are 20,000 species of bee of which the the domestic honeybee is just one um, they're really diverse. They live all over the world. They come in all sorts of colors and shapes and sizes, and they all tend to, they're all pollinators. Um, uh, between them, they deliver the, the majority of crop pollination and wildflower pollination. This is the, the wild bees rather than the honeybees. Um, but it, it goes beyond bees, which is something else that isn't really widely appreciated. There are many, many other insects that are really important pollinators, uh, hoverflies and butterflies and moths and beetles and wasps and uh, an umpteen more. Um, uh, so, for example, cacao that gives us chocolate is, is pollinated by tiny little flies. <laughs> so if we didn't have these little flies, we wouldn't have chocolate. How disastrous would that be? Pretty, so pretty bad. It would. It would be a dire situation. So... Um, so we need to look after all of these these insects, ideally. Um, honeybees, you know, we shouldn't forget about them. They're really important. They do do, as they are the single most important pollinator species in the world. But they're not even a native species, of course, in, in the Americas. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the pollination done by all of the other pollinators far outstrips that delivered by honeybees for most crops, but not all. Right. Well, and the reason that they're even commercially managed like they are is because of, um, you know, the mid-century when agriculture started becoming more in chemical intensive, uh, farmers found that there were no native pollinators left because they'd obviously been killed by the poisons. And then, so the commercially managed uh, migratory beekeeping system that we know here in the U.S. was created because of the loss of the natives. So getting back to an ecology where it's safe and where uh, native pollinators, no matter where you are in the world, where your native pollinators are supported is I think a goal that would be an honorable thing that all humans could work toward which means organic farming. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I mean, it's it's actually an enormously risky strategy to to end up in a situation where um, a farmer's crop, the, the classic example being the almonds of California, where the crop is entirely uh, dependent on that importation of, of countless millions of honeybees. There's just one species left there that does nearly all of the pollination. If anything goes wrong, if anything happens to that supply of honeybees, then, you know, that, that crop will be wiped out. Um, and naturally, most plant species are pollinated by dozens of different pollinators. And if something happens to one of them, somebody else will step in, the plant will still produce seed. Um, but we've we've en engineered this very unnatural situation where uh, we've wiped out most of the the native pollinators, as you say, uh, and that's really dangerous, you know, because we we do need these pollinated uh, crops. We couldn't feed the the seven billion people in the world without uh, adequate crop pollination, and we are absolutely crazy if we if we rely on just one species to do that. Right. And that's how it's become. It's it's uh, it's right there. And it just seems like it's almost 
here in California, it looks like it's the end game because they're just not surviving. The honeybees that are being brought in are still being exposed to all sorts of chemicals uh, when, they, um, when they're released off the trucks and then they don't do well. And, and I think this year is reported to be one of the worst years. They've managed to manipulate the hives and the bees enough to kind of hobble it along, but there's no, there's no good end in sight. And then they're exposed to all their diseases and, and problems and issues and then starvation too. Cause you know, once the almond trees have stopped producing flowers, what do they do? Yeah. You've got this sort of desolate landscape. It's uh, it's pretty sad. I, I also, I was astonished to read, I mean, after all the, the, the concern about the state of honeybee health in particularly in the Americas with your migratory beekeeping, which I, I'm glad to say is a system that we don't really have in the rest of the world. Um, but there was a, a recent study that revealed that um, they're still spraying insecticides onto the almond during the blossoming period when the honeybees are, are active. You think, well, <laughs> that's just insane. And apparently the farmers had been told that these were bee safe insecticides, which, it, which you know, is an oxymoron <laughs> if ever there was one. I mean, it there is. is no such thing as an insecticide <laughs> that doesn't kill bees, but does kill the bad insects, so to speak. So it's, I, yeah, I was astonished at just how naive and stupid we continue to be. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like, you know, the clock is ticking. We've got to get back to at least a, a, a state of uh, conservation where we're really looking at the future instead of just looking at short-term gain. Those specialty crops are the most unsustainable, it seems. And people need to really wake up how important this is and that business as usual is not appropriate anymore. It's just not appropriate. It's like biomass would be considered, and correct me, it would be considered like almost the krill in the ocean. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar kind of thing, you know, and, and actually there's an obvious parallel, which is that the krill are the kind of the base of the food chain uh, in the oceans. And of course, um, insects are on, on land. They're, we don't eat them, but we're, we're in a small minority in, in uh, in that respect, you know, most bird species, uh, bats, lizards, frogs, uh, and so on, f uh, many freshwater fish, all eat insects. So if the insects are disappearing, that's all the food disappearing for, you know, the beautiful birds and other animals that we really, that the many, that most people don't care much about insects themselves, but they do care about pretty birds and so on. Uh, and if, if that's the case, then again, they should be, you know, deeply concerned about what's happening because, it's basically wiping out the whole kind of food web if we lose the insects. Right, right. And I think you made a really good point about we can appreciate what is pretty uh, to our eye. But it, I think that that's really telling also about how humans think about wildlife, that it's separate from us because it looks different from us. And I think that that's an evolution that humans might be ready to uh, leap forward with right now, a conscious evolution that the other, what is unfamiliar to us, is really most important. And I love that parallel with native bees because the European honeybee gets all the news, but the reality is, is that the natives, no matter where you are, are the important species. And that's why I love your books so much. I think they're really important. You wrote something on your blog called Pesticides in Bee-Friendly Flowers. Can you explain 
what systemics, how they travel through the plant, and then how it's dispersed to a pollinator's food. So the systemics, again, are neonics, they're fungicides, they can be herbicides. Yeah, sure. So I got kind of involved in studying pesticides relatively recently in my career. I guess it was about uh, nine years ago uh, when this controversy over neonicotinoids, or neonics for short, blew up. Um, and they're, they're basically a, a, a fairly new generation of insecticides that have been around since the mid-1990s. Um, and they became very popular with farmers um, because they're uh, very toxic to insect pests. And they're systemic. So um, the majority of the use of these chemicals is as a seed dressing, particularly in Europe. I'm not sure if it's quite the same in the US, but I think it largely is. And so farmers would just buy uh, and still do buy their seeds coated in these insecticides. And um, the idea is that the, the, the farmer simply sows the seed and the chemical is water soluble and it dissolves in the damp soil, goes into the soil water and then the little seedling crop sucks up the chemical and it goes to all parts of the crop and makes it toxic to insect pests. So the farmer basically doesn't do anything apart from buy the seed and sow it in the ground. And you can see why that sounds like a pretty attractive sort of simple system of pest control to the farmer. And, and it's often billed as providing really good targeting, uh, much better than spraying insecticides from the back of a boom on a tractor where they can blow around in the wind or whatever. And, and so they took off and we reached a point where almost every arable crop in the developed world was being treated with these chemicals. Um, but as you, you know, as, as we're all now aware, it turned out that it actually wasn't quite as simple as that and that uh, these chemicals were nowhere near as, as um, well targeted as we'd thought. So part of the problem um, well, there's, there's enough. Where do I start? There's so many problems. Um, the, the first issue that was flagged up was because they're systemic, they go to all parts of the crop. If it's a flowering crop, they go into the nectar and the pollen. And so if you grow sunflowers or uh, corn or oilseed rape, canola, you guys call it, or anything else that flowers and needs pollinating, then when the bees come to visit it, they're getting a dose of insecticide. Uh, and these are neurotoxins that are astonishingly poisonous to all insect life. Um, so to try, to try and illustrate that, um, the, 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 the toxicity of insecticides is usually measured by a, a thing called the LD50 that stands for the lethal dose that kills 50% of the test animals. It's a standard measure. So for the, the, the most commonly used uh, neonicotinoid, or the first one that was really popular was a thing called imidacloprid. Um, and it takes just four billionths of a gram to deliver an LD50 to a honeybee, um, which uh, you can't visualize four billionths of a gram. It just kind of, the, your brain can't compute such small amounts. But to put that another way, that means that one teaspoon of imidacloprid, which is five grams, is enough to kill one and a quarter billion honeybees. And we're applying hundreds of thousands of kilos of this stuff to the landscape. We're applying enough to kill every bee on the planet thousands of times over. Um, and we know that they're being exposed via the nectar and pollen of the crop, but it turns out that it isn't just via the nectar and pollen of flowering crops. Um, there's some work we did um, 
was one of the first to flag this up. We looked in uh, wildflowers growing on farmland in the field edges and the hedgerows and so on. And we found that the nectar and pollen of those was also contaminated with these systemic um, insecticides. It turns out that when the farmer sows the seed, the majority of the chemical, about 95% of it in fact, isn't taken up by the crop at all. It's going into the soil and the soil water. It can accumulate in the soil. It can leach into streams. It can be taken up by wildflowers growing on farmland just as easily as it's taken up by the crop. And so essentially you end up with the entire landscape being permeated with these phenomenally poisonous neurotoxins. Um, so there was a recent study done by Swiss scientists where they um, collected honey samples from around the world and screened them for neonics. And 75% of them, including from remote Pacific islands and all sorts of places where you might not imagine many pesticides were used, 75% of them contained these insecticidal neurotoxins which basically means that three quarters of the world's bees are routinely being exposed to chemicals designed to kill insects. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't really be surprised that, that honeybees are suffering from health problems. And if honeybees are being exposed, it means that every other pollinator is also being exposed to these same chemicals. Um, so, you know, it, it, I mean, it's it's a catastrophe. Um, it, it, and it's enormously frustrating because we keep seeing new yeah, generations of pesticides come onto the market and we're told that they're safe. And it often takes 20 or 30 years for us to realize they're not safe and for the scientific evidence to accumulate. Um, and then eventually, um, you know, there are calls for them to be banned. And in the case of the neonics, Europe has been proactive and has, has banned most of them now. But the rest of the world will probably take another 10 or 20 years to realize how harmful they are. And so in, in, in the US, of course, you, your, guy, your farmers are still happily using them in huge quantities, sadly. Um, eventually, I, I, I'm sure it will be banned. But in the meantime, some other chemical will have replaced them and it will turn out to be just as bad down the line, I'm sure. Um, depressing stuff. So just the, the, you mentioned this other work we did on ornamental flowers. Um, so if you go to a garden centre, um, in the UK or anywhere in Europe. I don't know whether this also happens in the States, but the garden centers now flag up the plants that are good for pollinators, that are good for, for wild bees, bumblebees, butterflies, and so on. They often have a picture of a bee on the label of the plant. Um, and it's really popular these days. Lots of people want to look after uh, wildlife. They've become aware of the problems bees are facing. So when they go to the garden centre, they think, oh, that's great. I'll buy a lavender because that's good for the bees. We bought uh, a, a whole load of bee-friendly plants. I say bee-friendly with exclamation marks, which you can't see because this is on radio. But uh, um, uh, we bought some of these plants and we from a whole bunch of different uh, retailers and we screened them. And you, you I'm sure you can guess where this is going. They're all full of pesticides, a whole cocktail of pesticides. 70% uh, of them contained um, these neonicotinoids. Quite a few of them contained other insecticides like pyrethroids. Um, some of them had organophosphates in, which are pretty nasty. Um, almost all of them had fungicides in them, which can act synergistically with insecticides. So basically people are buying 
plants being missold them. They're buying plants with with the best of intentions, thinking they're going to bring them home and provide food for pollinators, and actually they're accidentally poisoning them. And I think that's completely outrageous. Um, I, I would be I would be absolutely willing to bet my last dollar that that the situation is at least as bad in the United States as it is here, sadly. I think it's a little bit worse here in the US because we don't have the same scientific um, principles that the EU has. You have the precautionary principle which has to, before a product or a poison can come on the market, it has to um, prove that it's safe for humans and nature. But what's happened here is business interests come first and then the product has to be proved to be unsafe by people and um, by organizations or whatever. And so by the time anybody is talking about a product with any sort of um, effectiveness, the product's been on the market for 15 years. To be honest, I, 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 mean, I think the EU is better, um, but not that much better. You know, it didn't stop us allowing neonics to come onto the market and, and many of the other same chemicals. We might be a little bit faster to get rid of them, um, but you know, we've only just banned neonics 24 years after they were introduced, after enormous amounts of environmental harm were done in the meantime. So, and the, the EU regulatory process is also subject to pressure from the agrochemical industry. They lobby, they manipulate, they do their best to get their products onto the market and keep them there as long as they can. And, uh, you know, I, obviously with the current administration in the, in the States, that's a real open door for them. Um, but it, it's not that much better in Europe, sadly. I wish it was. Is that the case for uh, France as well? Any good news? <laughs> yeah, so for France, um, it, it, European countries have the option to act unilaterally if they wish to. And uh, France is, is leading the way there. Um, so they... The European Union banned three neonics, the, the, the most toxic ones and the most widely used ones, but it didn't ban all of them. Um, France has unilaterally banned the whole lot um, and has also um, done something really interesting recently, which is ban uh, all pesticides for use in gardens and in city areas, in parks and uh, so on, which is brilliant because I've, I, you know, I and many others have said for years that we there is no need or place for pesticides in our gardens where our children play in the parks and playgrounds and so on. You know, uh, you you could argue that pesticides. Some people would argue that pesticides are necessary in farming. I I, I would be happy to argue about that, but there is no strong argument that says we need pesticides in our gardens. None at all. Um, and I think it's absolutely brilliant that France have gone ahead and done that. They're not actually the, the first. I mean, some individual cities all dotted around the world have done this um, some time ago. So, for, for example, Toronto banned pesticides um, some years ago. And, you know, the, the, Toronto is still standing. It hasn't been overrun <laughs> with weeds and pests or whatever. It looks like any other city. Right, right. You know, we absolutely don't need um, these pesticides, in you know, to be available in supermarkets for people to just go and buy for themselves and spray them around their gardens without any training or protective gear, with probably without bothering to read the label half the time. It's nuts. Um, 
Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, it would be fantastic if the rest of the world would follow France on that one. I, I, I suspect that won't happen, but uh, in my dream world, it would. So I don't know if you can speak to this um, through personal experience or through your own research, but there was a study by Friends of the Earth just a few years ago. They studied flowering ornamental trees in the Bay Area of San Francisco, which is where I am. And the ranges that they found in the trees was 24 parts per billion, 44 parts per billion, and 860 parts per billion in one crepe myrtle. So do you think about, because flowering ornamental trees for a city uh, pollinator advocate are the most important thing, because I don't have meadows. There's never going to be opportunity for meadows in San Francisco. But what my meadows are, are trees, flowering trees. Because if you look down on top from the top of them from a building, you can stand and look down and you see a carpet of flowers. That's a meadow to for a bee or a bird. So um, trees are everything. And so that kind of landscape, um, that you, landscape uh, industry, flowering ornamental trees, is something that's not even being looked at yet. And I'm terrified of that. Do you have any thoughts about uh, trees and any studies? So th this is not something I know so much about because thankfully it is not normal practice, so far as I'm aware, to uh, to inject ornamental trees in Europe with neonics. Thank God. Um, but I, I, I'm well aware that it's been going on for many years in North America. Um, I nobody has. Uh, really looked in any detail at how long they last in trees. Um, but I do know, for example, there was um, uh, work done on the, the use of neonics uh, to protect um, grapevines against pests, where um, a single treatment was adequate to keep the, the vines protected for four years. Um, uh, and so, you know, clearly they last for multiple years once they're into um, a, a woody plant like a tree. Um, and if there's a really big dose gone in there, and it sounds as if at least one of those poor trees was absolutely saturated with the stuff, then it's probably be decades before, uh, you know, they, it will dissipate, but it will take a long time. It will be many years. Nobody can tell you exactly how many, and it probably vary by plant species and uh, and depending on which neonic and it is and so on, we don't know. But you're absolutely right. Um, you know, trees are are really important forage for many species of bee, uh, not least just because of the the volume of flowers that a tree can provide. You know, I often advocate people putting in um, flowering trees in their gardens, even small trees, because the the amount of flowers that can provide compared to you know herbaceous, low-growing plants is is usually much much greater because it's kind of a three-dimensional structure covered in flowers. Um, uh, so, you know, yeah, it's it's potentially um, really horrific thought to, to, that, to imagine that, you know, most perhaps or even some of the trees in your urban areas are actually kind of death traps for bees. You know, you see it in so many ways where if, if there are a few dandelions trying to poke their heads up between the cracks in the pavement, they get sprayed off with herbicides. Um, in, in, I don't know whether you have this problem in, in, in the US, but uh, 
In, in the UK, people are always complaining about moles, you know, making molehills, which they think are unsightly on their lawn. So they call in someone to slaughter all the moles. And you just think, can we not just be a little more tolerant of the rest of the life on the planet? You know, this kind of just stamping our foot on anything that, that, that inconveniences us in the slightest is it's just a sort of childish and depressing response that we really need to grow away from somehow. But uh, I don't know how we persuade people. So what are you working on next? Your book. Tell us about that. It just has it been published yet? The the new book is out in the UK in July. Um, uh, it's already out in Germany, actually. The, the Germans were very uh, proactive in getting it translated. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm really hoping to engage with gardeners and persuade them to, you know, to tread more gently, to, to forget about the, the perfect kind of croquet lawn approach to, to, to managing their lawn and let it grow and let wildflowers grow in it and not use pesticides and all the things we've been talking about. Because I, I really think, you know, gardens are great places for us to reconnect with nature. They have the potential to be fantastically biodiverse, to support lots of wildlife not just bees, um, but lots of other things besides. Um, and there are lots of them, you know, and obviously there are a lot of people in the world and just in the UK, which is a, you know, tiny little country, really. We've got about half a million hectares of gardens. So there's a big win there, potentially, if I, if I can win over enough gardeners to get them to grow more wildflowers and generally just subtly change what they're doing to be a little more relaxed and, and let nature do its thing. Uh, then, you know, there if, if we could change from seeing our gardens as these kind of formal tidy places to to more relaxed kind of mini nature reserves then there's the potential for urban areas to become this huge network of of of, of nature reserves where bees and butterflies and flowers can can thrive and you know perhaps i'm in, i'm living in a dream world again i don't oh, know no, i think it's wonderful i don't i well i share your dream but no i think it's possible that the oasis everywhere each yard is an oasis each tree street tree is an oasis yeah yeah and and if we i mean there's also parks and urban green spaces owned by the local council and so on if we could get those um you know made more wildlife friendly if every park had a meadow area and more trees flowering trees planted and maybe a pond for the aquatic creatures and you know, just just try and invite nature into our towns and cities. All right. Well, you're wonderful. Thank you so, so much for speaking with us. And um, we're just grateful that you're there uh, and that you're uh, publishing like you are and sharing the message. No, it's 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 a pleasure and, and keep up the great work. To hear the full conversation with Dave Golson, please visit urbanbsanfrancisco.com. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening.